And unfortunately, I work in a studio that doesn't retain water very well. And the field conditions or the studio conditions that we talk about right now are probably as bad, if not worse, than they are in Mexico City as they have to change the location of the game between the Rams and the Kansas City Chiefs, which is a game we're going to touch on in a little bit. A ton of stuff we're going to get into, and i got to be honest, we're going to Try to move through topics pretty quick today, but always a reminder, if you're interested, you could give the show a call, 732-364-3598, comment on the Facebook Live or Periscope feed, or leave anything that's on your mind in regards to the world of baseball, sports, and unified America. So the first thing I wanted to hit up is the postseason awards in Major League Baseball given out. You know, at this time, every day, it's another award couple days ago, you had to Cy Young this past, you know, night. They talked about the MVP. And I thought it was a great opportunity for the baseball writers to stand up and vote based off of what they believe as opposed to what the narrative is and what they're told to believe. And we're going back a series of years. I think it was 2012 or 2011, the first time Major League Baseball put together this quote-unquote finalist for all the awards as if you know the hundreds and hundreds of players that play in a sport or however many would qualify for an individual award all of a sudden don't count and it's just decided that there's going to be three finalists for each one of these awards if you go back years upon years this wasn't the case before if you went back for a series of years it was the MVP was a choice of any one of what could be a hundred different players because you can make a case for more than just three players each year with each award. So the problem now is that the narrative sticks to where it's all about the finalist and anybody else that isn't one of those quote unquote finalists is no longer in the running and doesn't have a chance, even if that player could very well be in the mix to win in an individual award. And you saw that happen last night, and I really looked at it, and I thought it was a great opportunity for the baseball writers to stand up and make their case for J.D. Martinez. And you know what? They chose to not go that route. They chose to stick to the narrative. They chose to do exactly what they're told. And the baseball writers, who I'm not necessarily a big fan of to begin with, they put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. And there's a huge case that could have been made for J.D. Martinez to be the MVP of the American League. And finalists aside, he'd be the player that I would have voted for. A couple different reasons. Obviously, the number one was his impact on that team. He made that Boston Red Sox team, which was a playoff team a year before, which was a playoff team the year before, from a team that was just going to get to the other side, to a team that was a legitimate World Series championship contender. And this was the same team that had Mookie Betts, who ended up winning the award last year and the year before. And as great of a season as Mookie Betts had, and I have no problem with him winning the MVP, but the Red Sox 
were taken to a different level with J.D. Martinez, a level that they weren't at with just Mookie Betts. If there was a player in the sport that changed teams, that transcended that team and put them up on a different level, there was nobody that did it more than J.D. Martinez. And the fact that he was not a finalist was a joke, was an embarrassment, and set the writers up to where they had a choice to do one of two things. Number one, they could do what they did, put their tail between their legs and say our only choices for the most valuable player award in the American League are Mookie Betts, Mike Trout, and Jose Martinez. Which, by the way, Jose Martinez, as good of a season as he had, I would have put Alex Bregman in that top three, too. In fact, my top three, with all due respect to Mike Trout, and Mike Trout deserves to be in it every year. It's not just because of its name, his name. It's because he puts up numbers year in and year out that we have not seen in baseball history before. So if I'm talking top four, I got Betts, I got Trout, I got J.D. Martinez, and I got Alex Bregman. So Jose Martinez, even though he had a 30-30 season, even though he had over 100 walks and under 100 strikeouts, he did some great things last year. Deserves all the credit in the world for what he did. The Cleveland Indians would not be on the level that they were at this past year if it wasn't for what Jose Ramirez did. He deserves credit, but in all honesty, was the fifth best player in the American League last year. So he's in the top three. Trout, like I said, you put him at three, you put him at four. Alex Bregman deserved to be in the mix. But J.D. Martinez not only deserved to be a finalist for the AL MVP award, but could have very well been the most valuable player. And just as much of a case could be made for J.D. Martinez as could have for Mookie Betts. And the only thing that held J.D. Martinez back, and I'm telling you, the reason that J.D. Martinez did not get the AL Most Valuable Player Award was because he wasn't a finalist, was because of a change in the system that worked for many, many years. The Most Valuable Player should come up to the forefront. It doesn't need to be handed to you. It doesn't need to be a multiple-choice examination. Now, are we disrespecting the writers that we don't trust their judgment, that we have to throw multiple choices in front of their face? Is that, hey, these are the players that you could choose from. Do a little research on them and tell me who you think the most valuable player award is. Prior to 2012 or 2011, it wasn't like that. The writers should know. And if they're given the vote for these particular awards... They don't need to be given multiple choice answers. The only thing that held J.D. Martinez back from winning the MVP was the fact that he wasn't a finalist. And the writers, instead of putting their tail between their legs and just sticking with the narrative, doing what they're told, they could have stood up. And there could have been more writers that could have stood up and said, J.D. Martinez was the most valuable player in the American League. If he got 10 to 12, to 13 first place votes, it would have made a huge stand against the voting process, which we know sucks. There's no reason to have to put finalists out there, especially when you have a series of players that really are further than just three. and, And God forbid the thought that on a given year, there could be more than three players that are worthy of winning a particular award. So what do you do when it happens? Do you all of a sudden have to eliminate two of them? Which is essentially what happened this year. Alex Bregman didn't have a chance 
even though he had a ridiculous season. J.D. Martinez probably should have won the freaking award. And he doesn't have a chance because he's not nominated as a finalist. Now, once again, we're just talking about individual awards. So it's nothing to get all bent out of shape over. But we talked about a time where you had players from different regions and different cities that had impacts in different ways. And the amount of teams that get to the playoffs in Major League Baseball now is up to 10. Prior to 1969, it was just two. Two out of 20. Now we're, we're awarding 10 out of 30. So within those 10 teams that make the playoffs every year, there are players that had huge impacts on that happening. And those are the players that should be discussed. There should be more spoken about them and their impact on the game and what they meant to their teams and the reason that their teams did as well as they did. But when you take an award which is set to reward the best players in each in each respective league and you narrow it down to three and you say on the National League side, Matt Carpenter doesn't count. Jacob DeGrom doesn't count, even though he got a first place vote. Now, I understand Christian Yelich, Mookie Betts. You're talking about players that are very deserving of the award. It wasn't like it went to some bum. It's not like it went to somebody that didn't deserve to receive the award. But there should have been more discussion. And if it was open to every player in the league, we could have more of a discussion. Justin Verlander winning the Most Valuable Player Award in the American League you know, a handful of years back. He wouldn't have had any chance to do that if he wasn't a finalist. But now we open it, you know, if we could go back to opening it up the way the awards used to be set. I mean, even when it comes down to the manager of the year, Gabe Kapler did a great job in Philadelphia last year. Scott Service did a great job in Seattle last year. But because they weren't finalists, they weren't allowed to be part of the discussion. And I'm waiting for the writers to have a set of balls, to have some gall, to have a set of cojones, and to say, I don't agree that there's just three players that are nominated for one of these awards. I'm going to go out of my way and vote for the player that I think is most worthy of it. Not narrow down to the just three. And if J.D. Martinez could have gotten himself, I don't know, five, six, maybe even 10 first place votes, it would have been a big F you to the system. And the system right now sucks in Major League Baseball when it comes to its postseason awards. I'm Veronica Corningstone. And I'm Ron Burgundy. Go yourself, San Diego. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com, and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So you think about the fallout that's happening with the Oakland Raiders. And I mentioned the Raiders on the show a couple times because I do think the fans down there, I think, were sold on a little bit more than what they've gotten at this point. And you can make the case that John Gruden 
took the job because of the money and the owner was going to pay him a ridiculous amount and he's going to be compensated pretty well. And at some point, even if he has to, and the Raiders have to part ways and separate themselves from each other, John Gruden is going to be very well compensated for the rest of his life. And maybe that was his sole motive. Maybe that's the reason why he took over the Raiders, came out of retirement after spending all those years on Monday Night Football as a studio analyst. And they, they give you the tools to be your own boss. I think of the Raiders now, and I think of the Raiders the same way I think of every team that is going nowhere. Any team that's 1-8, and eight, any team that had any sort of expert expectations whether they were to be 500, maybe compete for a playoff spot, maybe being a rebuilding year. But the bottom line, when you get to 1-8, and eight, the you-know-what hits the fan. It gets nasty. Players are turned against each other, which we'll talk about as it applies to the NBA in a little bit. You got coaches that are put on spots where they have to answer the same questions every day. Hey, how did it feel like losing yesterday? How did it feel like losing yesterday? When you hear it five, six, seven weeks in a row, the same questions by the same writers, you could give a generic answer to each one and just move on to the next question. Or at some point, you may have some time to think about it where you add some insight and maybe some reasons why things aren't going the way that they're going. Pacific bullshit power play you're trying to pull here, but Asia Jack is my territory. So whatever you're thinking, you better think again. Otherwise, I'm going to have to head down there, and I will rain down on a godly firestorm upon you. You're going to have to call the United Nations and get a binding resolution to keep me from destroying you. I am talking scorched earth, mother. I will massacre you. I will you up. Now, obviously, there's veteran players on the Oakland Raiders, pretty similar to where. There are veteran players on the New York Giants. There are veteran players on the San Francisco 49ers. I'll even throw out the Jacksonville Jaguars and say a team that was expected to win that division and be a prominent team in the American Football Conference is not. There are veteran players in that locker room, too, that all collectively put all the teams together. You know there's a lot of people that are pissed off there. You know the media, the writers particularly the beat writers that cover these individual teams, are having a field day because they know they can go up to each and every one of these players and get a choice comment or two. So a writer who covers the Mercury News by the name of Matt Schneidman posts the story about some turmoil that's going on in the, in the Oakland Raiders locker room. And he quotes... An anonymous veteran player on the Oakland Raiders. And if you've listened to the show before, you know where I'm going to go with this. And the guy says, i got to get the bleep out of here. i got to get the you-know-what out of here. Now, I wouldn't be surprised that somebody would say that, whether it's with the Raiders, whether it's with any team that's struggling in the National Football League. You could apply it to as it goes with Major League Baseball or the NBA. If there's high expectations or reasonable expectations that a team is not getting the job done, I would expect veteran players to want to bail. So that's obviously not the point that I have an issue with. Mark Schneidman, I'm sorry, Matt Schneidman, and maybe, maybe he doesn't even deserve to have his name called out correctly, decides to post this story, says, 
An anonymous Raider player says, I got to get the bleep out of here. In full view of reporters, how is this player name held anonymous when he is in full view of a group of reporters? He talk about how players and coaches and executives get respect from reporters when they when when they're going to report something off the record says hey I'll give you this information but please don't put my name behind it how does a player have the right to say I want to get the bleep out of here in full view of a ton of reporters and nobody could put his name on it that's ridiculous. And I tell you, the reporting in this country, and I'll talk about how it just applies to sports because this is a sports show, sucks. We get people that say stuff all the time, and even some people that are willing to put their names behind it, but they're always protected by these writers who feel the need to do it. It's not an anonymous player if somebody says, I want to get the bleep out of here in full view of multiple reporters. And I'm not talking about two or three. There's a full room of reporters and he says this. And you don't put his name behind it. You give him the right to an anonymous quote. An anonymous player said this. It's not so anonymous when it's in a group of 20 reporters. Matt Schneidman, you should be ashamed of yourself for the Mercury News. Put the damn name behind that player. Because you're not putting yourself at risk by doing it. The player that decided to say that in full view of a group of reporters reminds me of the naked gun scene with Leslie Nielsen. When I see five guys stabbing somebody in full view of 20 people, I shoot the bastards. When there's a player running amok saying ridiculous stuff or maybe stuff that's warranted to say, in full view of a group of reporters, that player's name should be put behind it. And not just Matt Schneidman, but every other reporter in that room for not putting a name to that player should be ashamed of themselves. Just a reminder that Castro provides maximum protection against viscosity and thermal breakdown. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well at St. Aloysius Church's School in Jackson, New Jersey. Next thing we want to hit up, we're going to talk a little NBA. We'll move on into NFL picks, and we'll go into the Nobody's Listening segment of the show, which we're going to talk about identifying yourself on social media. So I wanted to talk a little NBA because you see the rift between the Houston Rockets and Carmelo Anthony, which is going to lead to him being either released or sent off on his way and eventually probably joining another team in the National Basketball Association. You got the rift between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant happening in Golden State. And the, I guess the view that I want to put on this is that you have really good teams that are assembled and put together. You have really good teams that have a chance, particularly in Golden State's case, to win the NBA championship this year and maybe next year. And if things go well, maybe a couple more years after that. And there's other teams 
that are in a position where they can compete with the likes of the Golden State Warriors. You saw it last year with the Houston Rockets. The most wins in the NBA last year. Taking the Warriors to seven games in the Western Conference Finals, which I know we forget about because in the end, the Warriors won. They swept the Cavs in the Finals. Once that happens, you tend to forget how they got there. But it was close. There was a chance that the Houston Rockets could have unseated the Golden State Warriors last year. So the Rockets thinking about what it is that we could do to get that edge. What it is that we could do to take that next step and bring in maybe that one extra player that could put us over the top. And they made the decision to add Carmelo Anthony. Now Carmelo Anthony's track record says if you go by last year, he joined the Oklahoma City Thunder and that team didn't necessarily prosper. So I would have used that information and say, you know what? I want to think at least a couple times and analyze what I think this player is going to be, not just from a numbers perspective as far as what he could do on a basketball court, but how he's going to impact the rest of my roster. And I think the Rockets realized, and they're making a decision after 10 games, so it's not like they played through this entire season, but they're realizing they made a mistake. And when it comes to the NBA, one of the most important things that separate winning and losing teams, that separate teams that are in the mix for a championship every single year and teams that are barely making the playoffs or teams that are good enough to make the playoffs but just play well enough to be one and done is team chemistry. Team chemistry in the NBA, I think, is more important than team chemistry in the NFL or in Major League Baseball. And it's certainly up there amongst team chemistry in the National Hockey League. Think about how physical hockey is, the fact that you're playing in such close corners. There aren't that many players on the ice at a time. You look at it, six on each you know, side. You got the NBA, obviously, five players going back and forth. But it's very important for the longevity of a National Basketball Association season that there is team chemistry. And we could put in the day and age that we live in when it comes to fantasy sports where we can't wait to put the pairing of LeBron and Kevin Durant and just put the best players all in a circle and say that they're all going to dominate. You could put a team together of LeBron and Durant and Steph Curry and Kyrie Irving. And we obviously have seen combinations of those players already. And it doesn't guarantee yourself an NBA championship. And we tend to overanalyze this by saying, hey, you just put the best players in a circle, all of a sudden they're going to play well together. How did that work last year in Oklahoma City when you put Carmelo Anthony with Paul George and Russell Westbrook? How did that work out this year when you took Carmelo Anthony and put him with James Harden and Chris Paul in Houston? Now you could say you could make this about Carmelo Anthony being a problem, which I don't believe he is. But when it comes down to it, it's all about chemistry in the NBA. And I tell you, the only thing that's going to get in the way of the Golden State Warriors winning themselves another NBA championship is the Golden State Warriors. And that's why I do think there is a deeper issue when you talk about the disgruntledness and the issues between Kevin Durant and Draymond Green. Does it mean that they have to go out there and trade one of them? Does it mean that one of these players has to be exiled out of there if they're ever going to have a chance to win another championship this year? No. But I tell you, chemistry in the NBA is so important. And you may see, in spite of being 12-4 and right now, well on their way in the Western Conference, obviously, if you're the books makers, if you're taking bets on the Golden State Warriors, 
you're going to certainly pay out a lot more if for some reason the Golden State Warriors don't win the NBA championship. They're expected to do that. But I'll tell you, the only thing that's going to get in their way is the Golden State Warriors. And that's why Steve Kerr has every right to be concerned right now because of the rift between Durant and Green. And I would expect these guys to be hard-nosed players, hard-nosed in their mind, and maybe not willing to let bygones be bygones if there are things that really upset themselves. If it's a situation where Kevin Durant expected the ball and Draymond Green said, I'm not going to give him the ball, then Kevin Durant's got the right to be pissed off. Now, in the end, you talk about all the sacrifices that are made amongst players for the common interest of winning a championship. If the Golden State Warriors don't win the championship this year, it's going to be considered an utter disappointment, probably an embarrassment. So you're looking at a team that's expected to win and very clearly is the number one thing that can get in its own way of doing it. So how do you handle this? Does the coach step in and have a meeting with his team or have a meeting with Durant and Green and somehow get them on the same page? Because they're going to have to be. They're two very key contributors, probably amongst the four top players on that team, which you know that roster is loaded. And not to mention Boogie Cousins coming over there, getting his you know Carl Malone moment when Malone tried to join the Lakers with Gary Payton and Kobe Bryant to win a championship. He wants his championship. I can't see how DeMarcus Cousins is going to help that team. Sometimes when you have too much star power, it impacts you. It hinders you. And I don't know if the Warriors are at a point where they feel like they should make a trade. Because Kevin Durant, the way he has conducted himself, has not necessarily endeared himself to his teammates. He has not made a commitment to stay in Golden State. You know he wants to be a free agent at the end of the year. He's going to take advantage of his chance to make max money and have the choice of where he wants to play over the next series of years. Draymond Green doesn't like that. So obviously there is a reason. Listen, nobody's a saint in this situation. But the Warriors, if they're going for it, if they're going to try to win an NBA championship this year, which you know they're expected to, you know it's going to be an utter disappointment if they don't. They got to find a way to settle this. But I tell you, the one thing that gets in the way, and it's not talent, it's not losing games, it's team chemistry. When team chemistry goes in the shitter, there's a chance that anything can happen. And the Warriors could go from being the elite team in the National Basketball Association. They could go from being a dynasty over the past five years, which they absolutely have been, to an average and ordinary team like that. And it could happen. With team chemistry. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste, a smoothness, and drinkability you'll find in no beer at any cost. NFL picks. We're going to get into them today, and I'm actually happy to say... I'll spend my one second to pat myself on the back. Two solid weeks in a row. First four and one week of the season, which has been a disaster to this point. But seven and three in my NFL picks over the last two weeks, which has given me a little bit of capital, a little bit of extra money to spend this week. I'm thinking about it. If we could go 500 or we could make it a push for the entire week this week, 
then maybe I'll use the bet on the three Thanksgiving games and do eight games next week. We'll see how it ends up working out. But four and one record this past week. I picked some games that I thought the team that was favorited was favorited by a little bit too much. And that's how we won on the Browns. That's how we won on the Tennessee Titans against the New England Patriots. So we're going to get right into it this week. You got the Dallas Cowboys traveling to Atlanta against the Atlanta Falcons. And I'll tell you, you're talking about a game that couldn't mean any more to both teams. You're looking at two teams that are looking for an opportunity to get themselves in the playoffs. And they probably know that if they drop this game, they're going to be in a very tough spot. Probably a loss for Atlanta or a loss for Dallas is going to put themselves in a situation where the losing team is pretty much going to have to run the table if they're going to have a chance to gather one of the wild card spots. The division, when it comes to the NFC East, is probably open. You got Washington, who is leading right now, probably controls its own destiny, but you know they are a little bit vulnerable. Nobody was looking at the Washington Redskins about their chances of winning the NFC East. It was all about the Super Bowl champion Eagles. It was all about, hey, are the Giants good enough with Saquon Barkley and a new coach? It was about, are the Cowboys good enough to make a run to win nine or ten games? It wasn't about the Redskins. So the Redskins, to this point in the season, have been kind of dismissed, even though they're leading the division. So I like the fact that Dallas is playing very well defensively. Dak Prescott is getting himself out of the pocket. It looks like he's got some rapport with Amari Cooper, who they just brought in from the dreaded Raiders. This game means a lot to both teams. And I like the Atlanta Falcons at home. In fact, they're, giving, they're getting three and a half. So I think it's a reasonable spread. So give me Atlanta minus three and a half at home against Dallas. Game two, I don't know what it is. And I'll tell you, I looked at this last year when I did my picks. I looked at it early on in the season. And I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not a New York football Giants fan. I'm not. I don't root for them. I'm okay if they win or lose. If they do good, great. But I somehow have this gravitation towards believing that they're going to win, even in some cases where they may not be good enough to win. Now, what got me once again when it comes to this Tampa Bay game at home, only laying a point and a half. And I understand, you look at the Tampa Bay Bucks and Ryan Fitzpatrick and the 400-yard passing games. The fact that he's got that rapport with Mike Evans and Deshaun Jackson and O.J. Howard. And they're pumping up yards upon yards upon yards. And last week, the fact that Ryan Fitzpatrick threw for over 400 yards and a team scored six points, you would expect that not to happen again. In other words, if Fitzpatrick threw for 400 yards this past week, the Buccaneers are going to score a lot more points. So what is it that's making me believe in the Giants? I look at the Giants last year. And I really felt that when they things got bad for them, they kind of felt sorry for themselves. They kind of started pointing fingers. And the coach didn't really have a good stranglehold on the locker room. I looked at the Giants last week, and I've seen them play a series of games this year that they could have won. That Carolina game where they lost on that 63-yard field goal. The game last week where... Really could have gone either way. And the Giants ended up pulling off late. So I'm not ruling them out in any given week. I don't think this is a team by any stretch of the imagination that's quit. But 
they are getting to a point where it's going to be very close. Probably at 2-8, and eight, you may see them quit. But if they can somehow win this game, which is a very winnable game, I think they can at least make the remaining games of the season worth playing. So give me the Giants minus one and a half at home against Tampa Bay. Next game, I'm going Houston Texans against the Washington Redskins, obviously in Washington. Houston getting three and a half on the road. And you're looking at a Houston Texans team that has made some adjustments. They got off to a zero and three start. Their first loss of the season was to the New York Giants. You're looking at a team that has made the adjustments both offensively and defensively. Deshaun Watson was getting himself hurt game in and game out, the amount of hits that he was taking. They readjusted readjusted their offensive line and their blitz protection packages and have gotten Watson in a position where he can avoid that contact, maybe focus a little more on throwing the ball than running for that first down, maybe staying away a little bit from that run option, which they were trying to run successfully and had some success doing over the course of the season. The Houston Texans are a good team right now, and I'll tell you, they are in the position to win that AFC South Division. I I like them in this game. I think they have a chance to make a stand and also make the NFC East a little bit more of a dogfight as we come down the stretch. And I've been dismissing Washington all season. Not that I don't think that they're a good team. Not that I don't think they deserve to be in the playoffs. But I think when push comes to shove, I think they can be shoved. And I see that happening this week. Give me Houston minus three at Washington. Game number four is a game that I'm going to pick my upset of the week. But if you understand the category or the discussion when it comes to upsets, Two games came to the forefront last week. Cleveland, Atlanta. Tennessee, New England. I jumped on those games because the spread was so high. And I wasn't necessarily predicting that the Browns or the Titans were going to win those games. But I felt they could keep it close enough. And I thought the spread got a little too high as we hit the concluding point of the Passball Show, just a reminder, it's brought to you by JohnPielli.com, as well as St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Philadelphia, traveling to New Orleans. New Orleans, obviously world beaters right now. Expected to be in the NFC Championship game, playing against the Los Angeles Rams, and right on the borderline of being a Super Bowl contending team. Sean Payton, Drew Brees, trying to add to their Super Bowl win that they have. They want to have another one together. It looks like they're on pace to do that. If you're a football expert, you're all talking about how great the New Orleans Saints are, even though their defense is very spotty. Their offense, you know they're going to score points with anybody. They're much better than the Saints. I think they could watch some of their division. The Eagles are looking even further dogfight in an National football Eight and a half. Stop them enough to keep this game close. Can they get anything going offensively? Carson Wentz has avoided throwing interceptions. He has not necessarily looked great. You can make a case that Nick, Nick Foles in the first couple weeks of the season is winning this game. And that's why I feel give me Philadelphia plus the game Rams, a game that, of course, was originally scheduled for Mexico City. The condition that my studio is in based off the rain so because that and say hey the whole Los Angeles Rams what happens when you have a good team that's when you throw a series at 
amount of offense that they're going to be able to see. Kareem Hunt, you know, Tyree, ton their opponents. They're right up there offensively. Is the fact that the Rams, you know, the Donalds, the, you know, the linebacker Fowler, who they just got from Jacksonville, not being able to keep themselves out of trouble on the field, drawing those extra flags. Now, I get it. And like I said before about the Golden State Warriors, the only thing that can get in the way of them winning a championship is the Golden State Warriors. And pretty similarly, I could say this about the Los Angeles Rams, the only thing that can keep them back is themselves. It's the Los Angeles Rams. Now the question is, going back to the old Art Williams quote, you could put the best plays together, and these plays are set up to where there's no way that these plays could fail. When they're executed the way that they are on, with the X's and O's, there's no way a defense can stop them. The only way that they can be screwed up is if you screw up running the play. And I think the Rams have the blueprint to get to a Super Bowl, which will be their first Super Bowl in Los Angeles for 30-something years, almost 40 years. A big marquee matchup in Los Angeles Rams getting three and a half. Give me the Rams at home against Kansas City. NFL picks, they'll be up on JohnPLA.com. I won't go over them again because they're not even really that important. But I do want to save a couple minutes for the last topic of the show today. The Nobody's Listening segment. And this is the part of the show where if you've been listening for the past 40 minutes or so of the show, you have tuned out. And I've probably encountered a series of other listeners that are just popping in at the exact wrong moment to hear me not talk about sports. But I will get to it, a little bit of a recap of the show today, in a couple minutes. So I was thinking about this the other day. You got the, uh, you know, articles that are set up on different sites, and there's the comment feed that's right below it. And if you're reading an article and you really are passionate about getting to the root of the article, reading it from Word 1 to Word 500 or Word 1 to Word 1000, uh, I, I know you almost can't help but gravitate towards the comments section. And people are always entitled to their opinions. I'll get into my comment feed on Periscope today. I'll address some of the, some of the comments made today. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion when it comes to sports, when it comes to, I don't know, issues in life. You want to talk politics, don't do it on my show. But people are always throwing out their opinions there. But when it comes to social media, when it comes to comment threads as they're set on articles and shows like my own, you really want to have a dialogue from a person that's a radio show host or a writer or a person that has put them together that is being exposed by the general public. They want opinions, but they want opinions from real people. And when it comes to social media, when it comes to comment threads, people seem to have some fear as far as hiding, wanting to hide their own identity. And maybe it gives them, you know, maybe that, uh, that beer balls, you know, per se, you know, you, you end up, you know, having that extra alcohol and all of a sudden you feel more confident than you really are. You say things that you won't say. You have more confidence in your words, even if they're a little misguided, because you're not holding yourself accountable for what it is that you're saying. You're essentially hiding behind a cartoon character. 
And if you're hiding behind a cartoon character, you're in a spot where it really doesn't matter what it is that you say. You could say anything, and it's not going to get traced back to you. You're essentially using your name as if it's your IP address. And when it comes to social media, sure, there's people that may not make you know big comments or may not say stuff that they're making statements to the general public about. So they may want to keep their accounts private. They may want to keep their accounts to a point where somebody can't track them down, you know, in a stalking type of way. And I get that. So it doesn't apply to people that believe like that. But for those that want to engage, for ones that are taken, you know, as soon as a show starts, hey, bam, I'm going to hit your comment thread. Bam, 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 bam. I'd appreciate it more if it's, hey, this is my first name, this is my last name. Because there's nothing that I do, whether it's something I write. Me? I know who I am. I'm a dude a dude disguised as another dude. And everybody else believes something else, and it's like a bunch of people coming up against you. Is that the biggest fear? Is that what upsets people? Is that what scares people to a point where they don't know what it is that, that, that they're going to say or how they're going to you know, get to the points that they want to make? Do you not believe as wholeheartedly about your points if your name was really put behind it? Those are all questions that have to be asked. So every one of these cartoon characters on Twitter, every one of these people that are out there on Facebook wanting to put their first and middle name together like it's some kind of fictitious name and they're deceiving the public. You feel passionately about points and your baseball 1600s, Mets fan one, two, three. If you don't have a polarizing enough opinion to throw out in the general public, that's fine. But if you do, you should have enough balls to put your name behind what it is that you say. Whether you're commenting on an article, whether you're throwing yourself out there on Twitter, especially when it comes to criticizing people in a celebrity statue. Which, you're talking about athletes, you're talking about accomplished people, actors, and musicians. If you have a problem with any anything that anybody in the public eye has to say, you sure as hell better use your first and last name. little recap of the show today. We talked about J.D. Martinez. And, and I tell you, a terrible job by the system, the way it's set up in baseball, to only have three finalists. You knew somebody was going to be left out in the American League, but J.D. Martinez, a guy who I feel very strongly should have won the award, held back because he wasn't a finalist. I didn't like that. The You got the Raiders. Got an anonymous player. In a full view of how many different writers were there. How many different reporters were there. Says, I want to get the blank out of here. And you can't put that guy's name there? Yes. Well, when I see five weirdos dressed in togas stabbing a guy in the middle of the park in full view of 100 people, I shoot the bastards. That's my policy. That was a Shakespeare in the Park production of Julius Caesar, you moron. You killed five actors. Good ones. Pretty ridiculous. The NBA, I'm telling you, the most important thing when it comes to winning an NBA championship ain't the talent, ain't how many wins you get in a regular season, ain't the dream team scenario of the most star players that are assembled at one time. It's team chemistry. And if you see what's going on in Houston right now, if you see what has the potential to be going on in Golden State, you're seeing team chemistry issues that may destroy those franchises. NFL picks, they'll be up on JohnPielli.com. Finally, identifying yourself on social media and in chat rooms. 
if you want to be taken seriously, if you really want your points, your hard thought uh, sentences that you've taken time to put together, maybe some research that you've done behind it, if you want to be taken seriously, don't have some clown name like Azabiel or Baseball Fan 1600. Because I don't care how good and well-researched your points are, they're not going to be taken seriously because you didn't put your name behind it. So I want to say to uh, Husan Galig, hello from the United States. They say hello from Russia. Uh, we got language of uh, different. And uh, Marcus Rua says, hi, look at me. Why you talk so much? For what? Please stop. Hey, I'm here. You always live with your baseball, and that is true. It's not fear. Thanks for your contribution to the show. We'll be back with you next week. This is the Past Ball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com as well at St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. There's some good college ball games this Sunday, Saturday. You got the NFL. Obviously, you got the NBA, NHL, baseball. I think you're going to start to see some movement. Maybe that first top 50 or top 100 player on the free agent class gets taken off the board. You heard Jeff Mathis signing with the Texas Rangers, backup catcher, kind of a marginal move. I did want to send some respect out to the family of former Major League pitcher Ken Howell, who passed away at the age of 57. Um, played, pitched in the uh, late 80s, early 90s for the Dodgers and the Phillies. He's dealt with some health problems over the last several years. Had a toe amputated. He's got had diabetes. You know, rest in peace to Ken Howell and his family. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.